That got you abnormally quiet. Usually, the 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 uh, announcement that there's a one-minute warning doesn't do much for you. Here we go. Great to see you this morning. Great to see you this morning. We're going into our second of our apologetics series, apologetics course seminar. You can find a copy of the notes um, back on the blue, the blue sheets in the notes there. But we're going to look today at the existence of God. Pretty good place to start, it would seem, as we think about Remember our, um, that our goal in apologetics is to... Does anyone remember from last year, last week, what the goal of apologetics is? What are we doing in apologetics? In evangelism, we are declaring the truth of God's word. We're declaring the truth of the gospel. What are we doing in apologetics? Defending it, and specifically defending its truthfulness and its reliability. So, today, there's lots of people, lots of our friends and neighbors, would say they don't believe that God exists. And this is called atheism, right? Atheism comes from the two Greek words, ah, meaning not, and theos, meaning God. So, atheism is the belief that there is no God. Others say they don't know if God exists, And they believe that it's impossible to know. And this is called, what's that called? Not atheism, agnosticism. From, again, the Greek word a, meaning not, and gnosis, meaning knowledge. So it's not not knowable. People say it's it's not possible for me to know whether or not there's a God. So there's lots of our neighbors that are in this uh, that would call themselves either atheists or agnostics. If you have or if you anticipate having a conversation about the existence of God or meeting someone who asks you questions about the existence of God, then my goal today is to give you a few talking points that you can use when you discourse with people who don't believe in God or say they don't believe in God. Hopefully that could clear away. Again, we talked about the distinction between people who are just cynically uh, cynically, you know, wanting to just make problems in, and throw up roadblocks, but then there's other people who have legitimate roadblocks and they need those cleared away, the rubble cleared away mentally to prevent, that prevents people from taking the idea of divine revelation seriously, the possibility of there really is a God. So, last week, again, the difference between evangelism and apologetics, declaring gospel truth. So what's the gospel truth at stake here? The gospel truth is that God is, and that he is the creator of all that is. God is, and he is the creator of all that that is. Evangelism declares that truth. There is a God. And you are not him, by the way. Now, apologetics can come alongside evangelism and defend the reliability of this gospel truth, including defending why it's reasonable to believe in a creator God. Why is it reasonable to believe in a creator God? So say you're having an ongoing conversation with a non-Christian friend, somebody maybe who says they're an agnostic. Probably more likely in our area you're going to have people that say they don't know if there's a God rather than, I know there's not a God. 
So this person doesn't know that if there's a God, they don't know that it's possible to know if there is a God or not. In that case, you have an evangelistic goal. You seek to proclaim gospel truth to them. Your evangelistic goal would be to declare to them, yes, there is a God. There is a God who made you. And then you would also likely have an apologetics goal. You want to demonstrate that believing in God is reasonable and consistent with reason, and it's actually more rational than the alternative of believing that he doesn't exist. Now, in doing so, you have a significant advantage. You have a significant advantage in your discussion. You have insider information. The reality is that the person that you're talking to actually does know that there's a God. The person you're talking to actually does know that there's a God. So let's go. This, this one is very good to see in Scripture. So let's go to Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. Turn to verse 18. Romans 1. Verse 18. All right, starting in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain or evident to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his, divine, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now drop down to verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So the next progression is that God gives them over because they did not see fit to acknowledge God. He gives them over to a depraved mind. And then in verse 32 it says, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things, a whole bunch of nasty things in the preceding verses, they know that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. All right, so if we put all that together, we see that the Apostle Paul is telling us that God has revealed himself through creation in such a way that his existence and his attributes are plain, they are evident to every single person. So from this passage, I believe that every person knows deep within themselves at least the following three things. Three things that we can get from this passage that every person actually knows, whether they say they know it or not. Number one, from verse 19, there is a God. Everyone knows that there is a God. God has made that plain to them. Verse 20, I think, says that everyone knows that God is great. His eternal power is evident. Everyone knows that God is great. So God exists, there is a God, God is great, and I think in verse 32, every person knows 
that God will rightly hold me accountable. Right? Because it says they know the righteous judgment of God, that the, that the one who does these things, these, that commits sin, deserves death. So everybody knows there is a God. Everyone knows that God is great. Everyone knows that God will rightly hold me accountable for how I live my life. You know this going into this conversation with your friend. That gives you an advantage because you know that they're actually in agreement with you on those three things at the core of their being, no matter what is coming out of their mouths. Not saying they're explicitly lying, but they're lying to themselves. So if these things are so plain and evident, then how are there people who deny them? How are there atheists and agnostics? Paul's telling us there really, there really aren't any. Not really. What we have are truth suppressors. Truth suppressors. That's the default setting of man's heart, is to suppress the truth. We shove the reality of God's eternal power and his nature and his reality to the back corners of our minds, the deep recesses of our hearts, and try and forget it. But God won't really let us. Now, he may give people over, as if they, in, if they in, insist on believing that lie, insist on suppressing the truth for long enough, he may, have, he may withdraw some of his grace, and, they may, uh, and, and it, it, it may become less and less possible for them to hear that voice that he has that whispers to them, yes, I'm real, and yes, you're accountable to me. We can be very good at suppressing the truth, but at the end of the day, it's suppressing not, not knowing. It's not about knowing, it's about suppressing. So, this is very important to remember when you're speaking to your agnostic friend. They're actively fighting against the truth that they actually know deep inside that God is real and that they have to give an account to him. So this ought to provoke in you several things, is what I would say. It ought to provoke in you compassion for them and for their plight because they're suppressing what would actually be eternally good for them. That's a sad reality. They're So it ought to provoke compassion. It ought to provoke sobriety. Because they love sin and themselves so much that they are willing to suppress the truth about God that they know. So they're choosing sin and self over what they know to be true about God. That's that's a sober thought. This person's in active rebellion against the Lord and choosing to suppress the truth. That's, that's a serious thing. It should also provoke hope and prayer. Hope and prayer, because God is stronger than they are, isn't he? Is he not able to break through their suppression so that what they know to be true actually comes to light in their hearts? God can overturn any suppression of the truth. He's very, very good at uh, removing the blinders from off blind eyes. But that, and this goes into the sermon that we're going to hear this morning, that ought to drive us to pray. It ought to drive us to pray because only God can break through uh, the suppression of a sinner's dead heart. So those are the things I think it ought to provoke in us, this knowledge that people suppress the truth about the reality of God's existence. So with that backdrop, 
And with that insider information that you have now fixed in your mind, which you ought to keep in mind as you're talking, you still need to talk to them. So let's look at several arguments now for the reasonability of believing in God's existence. Why it's reasonable. But let me take a second and stop for any questions. Any questions about that with the whole insider information? Do you buy that? Yes? Just a comment. I've had certain people tell me, you know, I don't buy that because that's just not true in my experience. I, I interact with people and I know, they, and, and they do not believe. And I would just say, we have to put our experience underneath the authority of God's Word. So if God's Word says they know it, then they know it, whether or not you've experienced that, or whether or not they've experienced that. So if God's Word says it, it's just true. It's we, just have to, true. we have to just put our our perception of things underneath God's word. And, and the other thing is, how, do you, how can you know their heart? Yeah. Uh, God knows their heart. You don't necessarily. So they tell you adamantly, I don't believe that there's a God. Well, you, but you can't actually know what's going on in the recesses of their soul. Um, and even if that, you would have said that was you at one time. You might just have been a really good suppressor. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, this is the witness of God. And it makes sense. Is it, is it not, does it not make sense that the God who is would reveal himself universally in this way to, so that people know of him, of, that he is real? All right, a few arguments or uh, thoughts as you seek to show the reasonability of the existence of God. I think the biggest one, uh, well, I think both of them are pretty, pretty significant. Creation and design. Creation and design. And I would say that creation by an intelligent designer is more intellectually plausible than creation by random chance. Creation by intelligent design, by a creator God, as we would say, is more intellectually plausible than creation by random chance. So how did everything start? What's the origin of the universe? There are essentially only two basic answers to that question. Number one, either the universe is self-created in some way, it exists because it exists, and it generated itself, or option number two, it was created by something else. There's really only those two possibilities. It either sprang to existence on its own, or someone caused it to do so. So the question is, which view do you have faith in? Because I would say that both of these are actual faith commitments. Now again, your friend might not acknowledge, your friend might say that he or she is actually putting reason over faith, that he's not depending on faith. The reality is, again, hint, you have, some, you have that insider information. There's a faith commitment to a materialistic worldview. When I say materialism, I mean the idea that there is no transcendent reality, that matter and energy and time are the only things that are actually real. So the physical universe and its physical laws are the only thing that exists. That's materialism. And here's a quote from a guy named, I don't know how to say his name, Richard uh, Lowenton, maybe? He was a leader in the world of evolutionary biology. He essentially admitted that adherence to materialism is a faith commitment. Listen to this. This is crazy. Now, is he speaking for all atheists? No, but I think he's representative, and I think he's actually got 
quite insightful here. He said, our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to understanding the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of life and health, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. The prior commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiative. And moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. We cannot allow. That's my first commitment. My first commitment is I cannot allow for a God. Therefore, I will then interpret science in such a way that, and interpret the data in such a way that it backs up my a priori commitment. Do you see that that's a faith commitment? That's not objective. They're coming to this, this, this man at least was willing to admit, I'm coming to all the data that I'm going to observe with a faith commitment, an a priori commitment to materialism. I cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Well, if I can't allow a divine foot in the door and I see evidence of a creator God, what am I going to do with that data? I'm going to somehow explain it away. I'm going to create constructs and scientific models that actually explain that away so that I don't have to acknowledge what I actually know to be true, which is that there is a God. Right? Now, again, he's not going to, he, you know, there's going to be plenty of people who aren't going to admit what he just admitted, but I think it's true. You've got a, you've got a previous commitment that there's not a God, that this universe is all there is, there's no supernatural, and then everything. Now you have to explain the world from that vantage point. That is just as much a faith commitment as us saying, we're going to start out with the assumption that there's a creator God. You see that? Yeah. All right, materialism assumes that the origin of everything began through time and chance. Right? Those are the only factors really at work, other than the physical laws, time and chance. There's a very simple equation. The impersonal force, call it what you will, energy, matter, Atoms, space, plus time. So the impersonal force plus time plus chance results in everything that we see. My pancreas, which Elisa told me yesterday both... I can't even remember what she told me. She said it creates these enzymes that go one way, and then it takes in something and does something else. And it's full. These enzymes would like would like burn a hole through your skin if it wasn't contained in the... I mean, like, th- that all is a product of impersonal force plus time plus chance. Given enough time, anything is possible. Anything can happen. What's the probability, though, and the likelihood of cre- this creation, the creation that we observe, coming about through this equation of time plus chance plus matter? So we're going to set aside... 
most of creation, trees, mountains, sunsets, let's look at just the most basic building blocks of life. So let's just think about a living cell, what it takes, what it would take. Have you, I mean, how many of you, you studied, most of you studied high school biology. You know what's in a living cell. Do we have any CC kids? Do we have any CC kids in? Yeah, what, what are the parts of a cell? CC kids? Levi, parts of the cell. Ah. <laughs> Nucleus, cytoplasm, vacuole, yeah, yeah, mitochondria, Golgi body. You know, so just the simplest of living cells, right? According to an analysis by astronomer Fred Hoyle, who is not a believer, he was an atheist, the probability of cellular life arising from non-living matter. So a cell, he compared it, he said it was about 1 in 10 to the 40,000th power. 1 with 40,000 zeros after it is the probability. He said, the chance that higher life forms might have emerged in this way is comparable to the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. Can you imagine that, that happening? You know, junkyard, tornado sweeps through it. You come by and instead of devastation, there's a beautiful airplane. <laughs> That's how he compared the probability of... Now, you want to talk about truth suppression. Do you know what he did? He didn't acknowledge a creator God. He said, well, life must have come from space. So there's life throughout the universe, and, and then it traveled to the Earth with meteorites and cosmic dust and things like that. Right. Now, I don't know what he thought, how that original life came from, but I haven't studied it enough. This is what Hoyle also said. He said, life as we know it is, among other things, dependent on at least 2,000 different enzymes. How could the blind forces of the primal sea, right? Because that's the idea that the, or that the early earth was, was full of, of water and, and chemicals and things like that. How could the blind forces of the primal sea manage to put together the correct chemical elements to build enzymes? Now, he also does not speak. There's plenty of people who are like, that's rubbish. You know, there's plenty of reasons. He's not taking into account this or this or this. But I think that's a reasonable question to ask. How could a living cell arise through time, plus matter, plus chance. How do you go from non-living matter, which evolutionary theory pr proposes that the Earth was all non-living matter, pr produce the first DNA, the first RNA, the first cell um, components? What are they called? Orga organelles. You know, how, how did that happen? Just the very first building blocks of life. From there, you need eyes, you need ears and nose for, for, for us, you need different species of plants and animals and the whole universe around us, and you need an environment in the first place. So obviously, there's just a really low probability that the universe around us was created through random chance. Now, I don't want you to think that I think that low probability means something couldn't happen in a certain way. I'm just saying it takes faith to believe in a purely naturalistic explanation for the universe. Have to, if you're going to go, if you're going to go off a one in ten to the fortieth thousandth chance, that's a that's really a that's really you having a faith commitment, which now makes now puts you and me on equal plane. We're both we're let's both acknowledge we're starting from a faith commitment. Now let's have a discussion.
Material, uh, materialistic evolution by natural selection is insufficient to explain the origin, complexity, and diversity of life. But I can understand that it seems elegant and convincing if you begin with the presupposition that there's no supernatural. Then you have to, then you have to come up with a reason. Okay? At a minimum, it is no, I would say it is no less reasonable to believe that the world came into being through the activity of a creator God than to believe it was created through random chance. So in the view of it, that, that an intelligent designer created the world, we only have to make one assumption, that someone created the world. That's a big assumption, but it means we don't have to take thousands and thousands of smaller steps of faith, which is required for a materialistic explanation. Okay, so there we go with the creation now let's look at anthropic arguments. Anthropic comes from the principle of man, so you're considering man and what he's like, and seeing how does how does the witness of the world how does the we saw how the witness of the world points to a creator God. How does the nature of man point to a creator God? There are fundamental aspects of human nature and human experience that are best explained by the existence of a God who created us this way. So now we're looking looking at ourselves and our fellow human beings. What are some of these aspects? What are the things that are intrinsic to us as human beings that point to a creator God? Well, number one, ethics, morality, and conscience. Because a world ordained by a moral lawgiver is more satisfying and explains human life better than the alternative. See, all humans have a conscience, a sense of right and wrong. Every culture in human history has upheld some beliefs about right and wrong, and largely they're fairly consistent. Everyone, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, you know, everyone knows that you're supposed to be unselfish. Now, uh, there might be differences from culture to culture who you're supposed to be unselfish towards. Is it just my immediate family? Is it my tribe? Is it everybody? But everyone at least agrees I'm supposed to be unselfish, right? So there's a lot of continuity across cultures about morality. We seem to operate as though some things are right and others are wrong. Why? Where did this sense of morality come from? And as before, there's basically two answers. One is that our sense of conscience comes from God, who created us as moral beings with a moral order and equipped us to act rightly. Or it came from somewhere within creation, from some kind of social evolution, uh, or, an ex- or the example, or culture, or our survival instincts. For instance, uh, I really like, I'm going to recommend three books to you at the end. One is um, M- Rebecca McLaughlin, who said that evolutionary morals says, well, how did morals evolve? How did ethics evolve? Well, you know, maybe one of them is the idea that I, pro- I protect my kin rights. It's better for me, evolutionarily speaking, if my tribe and my kin do well, so I'm willing to sacrifice for the good of the tribe, for the good of my kin. And, and she points out that if that were the kind of the highest moral goal, Nazism starts looking really good. Right? I'm going to protect my people... At the expense, and it doesn't matter at the expense of who else, right? So where are we, where are we getting? But, and yet we, and, and yet we revolt against the idea of, of of Nazism and what it represented, and it's and it's dishumanizing, dehumanizing of so many people. There are people who seriously argue that our sense of 
conscience comes from as evolution or instinct or social con- constructs. In other words, it's not objective. It's not external to it ourselves. It's internal from, our, from ourselves. Therefore, we won't be ultimately held accountable to anyone for violating it, other than maybe society. Right? Because, again, if you're thinking, if you, going back to the presuppositions, it's highly convenient if you can do away with accountability, right? Because if you do away with accountability, then you're enabled to act on whatever desires you happen to have. All right, this theory has been taken to its logical conclusion. It's always funny to look at the fringes. By Princeton professor Peter Singer. You may have heard of him. So he argues that ethics should be balanced by measuring, quote, the happiness-maximizing best interest of society. So ethics ought to be determined by what maximizes the happiness of society. His conclusions lead him to believe, in theory, that it's not only okay, but preferable to commit infanticide in the case of severely handicapped children, and that selective geriatricide, meaning meaning euthanasia of the old, because it would save a lot of money on health care costs. And presumably both of these lead to a relative greater happiness and an improved lot for society. Now I would say that his moral framework is fundamentally dishonest at an emotional level. Because it makes sense on paper. It's actually logically sound based on his presuppositions and assumptions, but it just doesn't work in the real world. Because we live as if all life has value and meaning. I don't really believe that Professor Singer, he's actually a fairly, uh, he's a philanthropist. He gives lots of, uh, of his money away to, to worthy causes. I don't believe that Professor Singer could in practice bring himself to live out his log- logical conclusions of his theory. God's going to prevent him from going that far. See, relativistic morality will not satisfy our innate desire for justice, our innate desire for fairness, so it should be rejected. We live as though some things are right and others are wrong, which is why we're indignant when someone cuts in front of us in line. And when someone cuts in front of us in line... Or when someone does a petty wrong to us, usually if you confront them about it, they don't just say, huh, deal. They actually usually quarrel with you, as C.S. Lewis says. Quarreling is a mark of our... And we actually we, we, we leverage and we say, well, actually, the situation justifies that. We're interested in self-justification, and so we argue why, you know, as Lewis says, you know, it was very different when you lent me that bit of orange, and I don't have to lend you my bit of orange. You know, uh, so that... Under that sense of justice and fairness, we appeal to a higher standard. We, we actually appeal to a judge. And if morality was socially constructed and we knew that it was only socially constructed, there'd be little to keep us from violating it at will every time we saw an opportunity to pursue our short-term pleasure or gain. In fact, most people, including most atheists and agnostics, just don't live this way. And again, I, uh, the first a couple chapters of Mere Christianity, I would say, uh, the best treatment I've seen of this subject. We live as though some things are objectively right and some things are wrong. It doesn't resonate with our experience to say that's just societal. It doesn't adequately explain our, our understanding of morality. So it's reasonable to believe that we have this perfect law, or this moral law, because it's actually been planted in our hearts by a lawgiver. 
who is morally perfect. That's reasonable. It's reasonable to assume that that's where our moral instincts come from. And in the same way that there are laws of nature, like gravity, electrical force, we believe that there are also moral laws or absolutes that govern the universe and that flow from God, not from society. And that he is the one who built into us a standard for right and wrong. You will notice that the moral law, though, is different from other natural laws. The natural laws that govern rocks and lightning and apple trees, that just describes how they behave. They're descriptive. How does a rock behave when I let it go? You know, it falls to the ground. What happens if I take that same rock to space in zero gravity? You know, it, it, it behaves those same laws, but in a different way. It just describes reality. However, the moral law that governs us is not descriptive because it doesn't describe what we actually do. It describes what we know we ought to do. Well, where does the sense of ought to coming from? That word ought makes all the difference. Why should human behavior ought to look like anything if we are just merely sacks of chemicals obeying the laws of physics, and that that's, if that's all there is. There isn't any ought to that world. But we know that we ought to behave one way and not another because God has put it in us, and that's a reasonable thing. Romans 2 says, When Gentiles who do not know the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, and now even defending them. So even those without God's law still have an internal morality of conscience binding their behavior. All right, number two, or letter B, I guess maybe it is, religious experience or the, the, the yearning for the transcendent Yearning for eternity. Our desire for eternity and for ultimate meaning points to the need for a relationship with God. Why are we as humans so difficult to satisfy? Why are we always looking for the next thing? It seems a near universal experience. The atheist John Paul, or somebody who knows French, correct me, Jean Paul Sartre, said that there comes a time when one asks, even of Shakespeare, even of Beethoven, is this all there is? Right? Even the greatest geniuses and the enjoyment of the work of the greatest geniuses in our world, we still look at them and we say, isn't there anything else? Isn't there anything more? Not as well versed in the classics, the Rolling Stones summarize this nearly universal experience slightly different. Anyone know what I'm talking about? I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and I tried, but I just can't get no satisfaction. Much more profound than either of these, Solomon and Ecclesiastes evaluated human experiences, and this is his analysis of the world. There is nothing new under the sun, no new novel ideas. The satisfaction of work and profit is temporary, because one day we're going to leave our work to someone else, and we will be left without control of it after we die. Material possessions and pleasure are unfulfilling. He refused himself, Solomon refused himself no pleasures, but found them lacking. In fact, it's interesting that he wearied himself with pleasure. 
He wearied himself with pleasure. And ultimately, because death comes to all of us, regardless of how good or bad we are, how smart or stupid we were. So there's, there's a fundamental longing in the heart of every man. He concludes that this world is meaningless, utterly meaningless, a chase, chasing after the wind. That is the world under the sun. The world just as it is uh, perceived. When you have conversations with friends, there's two ways that you might help them to acknowledge this sense of meaninglessness. And now then I'll show you why that's helpful as you seek to introduce them to the idea that God is reasonable. So you could actually help them to see that they have a sense of meaninglessness. You could ask them this question, what would it take to really satisfy you? What would it take to truly make you happy and satisfied in this world? You remember what, I can't remember who it was. Who was the really, 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 really rich man who was asked, how much money is enough? Rockefeller. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Second, you could ask, what's next questions? Okay, so you had a great night out last night. Best time ever. What's next? Okay, you have a fancy job now, and, and, you, got a, and you got your new car. What's next? Ask them to take their dreams, their ambitions, their life to its logical end and see when the what's next will stop. So is it when you have the huge house and the vacation house? Will that be enough? Will that be sufficient? The point is that we all seem to have this desire for more. More. More beauty, more desirability, more awesomeness, more joy. We have this desire. Why can't we fulfill it? Why can't we ever be satisfied? For every other innate desire that we have, there's a real object that satisfies that desire. So when we're thirsty, we can drink water, and it satisfies that need and that desire. When we're hungry, eating food satisfies us. When we're hungry, if we tried to satisfy that hunger with, by reading a book or watching TV, that doesn't actually satisfy us for a while. It may temporarily distract us. It may cause us to forget about our hunger for a few minutes or a few hours. But ultimately, the only thing that's truly going to satisfy a hungry person is that which will meet the need that is making us hungry, which is food. I find this with my kids. My kids always seem to find that they have hurts when the TV is turned off. Once the TV is turned off, suddenly they have a cut or a bruise or something like that because they've been distracted momentarily from the reality of it. But, you know, it's still there. And when the distraction's turned off, that, that need is still there. There exists in us a desire which nothing in time, nothing on earth, no creature can satisfy. This hunger for more life, more, more of the essence of life. Therefore, there has to exist something beyond time, beyond earth and its creatures, which can satisfy this desire, and that is God, right? What did Jesus say? This is eternal life, that we may know, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. So life with God forever is what we're actually hungering for. Blaise Pascal, I'm going to put these two quotes in your thing. Uh, Pascal is 400 years old, so it, it sounds uh, a little dense, but what else? It's, this is the idea of the God-shaped vacuum that's in our souls. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there 
the help that he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. I might say it this way. We are all homesick for Eden. And we will never be satisfied until we get back there. That's what God created our hearts. St. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find their rest in you. See, what most secular non-Christians are filling their lives with is either temporarily filling their need, like food does, or distracting them from finding the real solution with things like TV. Our desire points, our hunger points to a supernatural world and a supernatural God. Materialism and the things of this world will never truly satisfy our desires. The adrenaline junkie will always need the next hit. Ecclesiastes 3.11, though, says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Eternity is set in our hearts. We know it. Again, that's something that you, insider information, you know that's true of your friend. That he longs, he or she longs for something that's ultimately God. Jesus says in John 4 to the woman at the well, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And if you are here today and you're not a Christian and you're trying to fill your life with every conceivable conceivable solution, you're trying to fill it with, I don't know, marriage or children or good sex or good food or, uh, you know, again, the next high or uh, being liked or Facebook you know, uh, social media uh, junkie. That hunger in you, use it the way God intends you to use it, which is to say, I'm longing for something better. And And what is that? Well, that's himself. All right, number three, capacity for good and evil. Human nature is most consistently explained by the Christian view of man, which is that he's both created in God's image and he's born as a sinner. So why do we live the way we do? We're really rather odd, aren't we? We have this immense capacity for beauty and goodness, and we have this immense capacity for horror and evil. Individually, we can have such extreme thoughts of, 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 of excellence and horror in our minds. We're given to actions that we characterize either as very good or very evil. We have no problem understanding how a mother can sacrifice her life to save her baby, or how a firefighter and a rescue worker can go into the Twin Towers at the risk of his own life, knowing that he's going to die um, in order to save other people. We're also very capable of some of the greatest evil, child abuse, genocide. And we we know that in our experience, and, and those of us who are honest are realizing that the seeds of all sorts of evil lie resident within our own souls. But we, can, we watch Stalin and Hitler and the Bosnian genocide and Srebrenica and, and Rwanda and Twin Towers. We, we recognize that as part of who we are as humans. And this is where Christianity makes perhaps the most unique and profound statement about the nature of God and man. Christianity states these two things about humans. That we were made in the image of God. We were created good. But second, we've rebelled against him. 
And this is unique because no other philosophy so logically and realistically reconciles man's capacity for great good with his tendency toward great evil. The idea of a created and fallen man actually satisfies what we see in the world. See, man is made in the image of God, and therefore he does reflect the creator's goodness and his moral character. That's why we, even as fallen, are capable of some of the greatest good. And yet, um, and yet our fallenness explains why uh, there are things that lodge in the depths of your heart that you wouldn't want anyone to know, except maybe a few people. Christianity reconciles these two seemingly contradictory realities like this. We're made in God's image. We rebelled in him. We rebelled, and that's called sin. And so while we're saddened by evil and sin, we're not as often surprised by it when we hear about it. We understand that apart from Jesus, we're all by nature rebels against God, which means we would rather do things our way than God's way. And so when those two ways conflict, we tend to take our way. But God knows and sees everything that we do. He sees our thoughts and our motivations and our dreams. And so even when we violate God's perfect moral law, his character requires that he give out a penalty for this. Just like we would have no satisfaction if we knew that a known convicted criminal could bribe the judge and be unjustly let go. Right? We'd call that judge unrighteous, right? In the same way, we should take no satisfaction in a God who would allow our rebellion to go unpunished. That God would be unjust. But in the gospel, we believe God both punishes sin and forgives it. And the way he can do that is through the sacrifice of the sin bearer, the one who can take on that evil and bear it and pay for it, and then, uh, and then turn around and offer us that forgiveness. So, this, so that's why Christianity explains, and therefore it's intellectually satisfying. It explains the world around us in a way that your agnostic friend can't actually explain. All right. So there's some thoughts for you as you seek to have some conversations with people who don't believe there's a God or don't know if God can be known. Uh, hopefully that can be helpful to you. Three books to recommend. One, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And Elisa, could you hold up the other two? Uh, John Frames, The Nature... Uh, what is it called? Nature's Case for God. Excellent. And the third one is Rebecca McLaughlin's 12 Hard Questions, or, uh, let's see, Confronting Christianity. 12 Hard Questions for Religion. You can look those up when... You can ask me to take a look at them. Father, we pray for us as we seek to engage with an increasingly secular culture. Help us to have good categories that we can engage fruitfully with those who are suppressing the truth, as many of us once did, uh, all of us once did to some degree. Lord, open blind eyes to the truth of the gospel through us. In Jesus' name, amen.